cliffcentral.com. It is a Thursday morning on cliffcentral.com, and that means it's time for the burning platform. This morning, we're going to get into some of the events of the last couple of days and perhaps even look at some stuff more retrospectively for the last year as we wrap up the burning platforms for this year. We've got some amazing guests this morning. We're going to talk uh, chiefly in the first couple of minutes to somebody who's well known to us, and he is Jean-Jacques Cornish, JJ Cornish. It's nice to see you, sir. How are you? Bonjour, I'm immensely well, thanks. Kind of you to ask, though. No, no, in always good. In the dark. He's, yeah, this is, this is Jean-Jacques' traditional background for me. You haven't seen him on a Tuesday <laughs> when he joins us for the African Analysis <laughs> Report. Yeah. yeah. I, I always, <clears throat> I always come in early and I'm so glad I did because there was Pumi sounding like Bibi Netanyahu. I'm looking <laughs> at the way this, the way this wall is being built is not entirely kosher. Who are, who are you keeping out with the wall? The whole, the whole of Palestine. And then we, and then Mbulela, one of my very favorites, he is at a finishing school mm. for a full Retirement village. I know. With trail care facilities. <laughs> Definitely. That's what he's doing. Yeah. So but, when he finally wrinkles up like I have, uh, he'll just be able to walk straight into somewhere, you know, where they feed you, uh, uh feed you your food rectally. And, and can, I mean, uh, he, he, he'll can, be fine. He'll be fine. They can wheel you around. But JJ, I mean, so we were talking about neighbors and, and we live on a continent where sometimes our neighbors are our very best friends, and sometimes our relations are a little bit fractious. But we, we live in an international community where there's always so much motion. I mean, do you believe in, in all your observations over the years, and this is a much more general point, but we'll get into the specifics in a second. Do you believe in that adage that, you know, good fences make good neighbors? Because here in South Africa, we have, uh, we have a very tenuous relationship with some of our neighbors, don't we? And the Absolutely. Fence. And a terrible fence. I, 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 I think if I've lived five years and I don't know my neighbors on any side, I've done fairly well, you know. I mean, I bought a house from a pilot, and across the road was another house built by another pilot. So, uh, uh, oh, somebody stole my bri or something. So I had to go and find out from a guy across the road where my pilot had moved to. So we became friends. Happily, he uh, he eventually buggered off, you know. Yeah. And uh, but I don't know any of my other neighbours. I knew somebody behind me who I knew from my running days, but he too has left, and I don't know any of my neighbours. Uh, and 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 that's how I like it. Um, I, I did have somebody bring me some rock buns one one day, and uh, I thought how very kind. And then it was uh, with a with a note asking me please to turn my television down when I wake up in the morning because I'm I'm as deaf as a post, you know, <laughs> too much too much rock and roll in my youth, oh, wow. uh, you know, the, with headphones on, and uh, so I have my tele my television very loud when I wake up at five. I'm an early riser, so I'm less than popular. I'm like a. I'm, I'm as popular as a rattlesnake in a lucky dip in my neighborhood, I'll tell you. So, JJ, on that note, let's metaphorically extend that to South Africa. What are our relations like with Namibia, Botswana, Lesotho, Swaziland? We know Swaziland's a controversial one at the moment, and Mozambique as well as Zimbabwe. I mean, those are our, those are our immediate neighbors in South Africa. How do we get along with all of them, and what are our relations like with the various governments of those countries? I think we get on very well with them. There is this element called giantism where we take things over, you know, and the Zimbabweans uh, are, are, are very conscious of that, as are the Twanas. But the, if you really want to know what 
Africa thinks of us. Mm. Ask a Zambian. I think I've told you that before. They are the most articulate and the most critical. Mm. They're the very best. Now, as for our Southern African neighbors, so to speak, at the moment, uh, Angola is not getting no Christmas card from the, uh, union buildings. Oh, yeah. Because they, like, like five, four other African countries, Egypt, Morocco, Rwanda, and Seychelles, have put in a travel ban because of the Omicron. Uh, uh, variant. Right. And, uh, in, in fact, Cyril Ramaphosa said they, it's, it's a pity that they have belay, behaved like their former colonial masters, Ooh. which is about, uh, about as tough as you can get given, you know, what, what Helen Zilla picked up for picking, pointing a, <laughs> a, a figure at the colonial times. So that's how much, how strongly he feels. Well, I mean, these, these countries now look at us and say, well, you know, with your cases doubling, Every day, 8,500 of the latest. What would you expect? Happily, our other neighbors are all in, in, included in that lockdown. So, uh, they, you know, they, they simply come along with us and, uh, they, they're all agreeing with South Africa that lockdown before the science demanded it, uh, uh was, was not a good idea. The fact is, you know, if you're going to wait for science, well, the World Health Organization has said, it's going to take at least two weeks to decide exactly what we should have done. And when you have, you know, what about between 700 and 1,000 South Africans coming into your country every day, yeah. are you going to wait for two weeks? Yeah. I mean, this is. But to get back to, to, get back to our, 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 the way our neighbors work, you know, we do, we do dominate them. I mean, uh, although people say that we should be, we should be doing more in Eswatini. I, I certainly agree with that. You know, putting, holding, holding the king's foot to the fire a little bit more. But, uh, and you know, coming out of apartheid, Alfred and Zor, hmm. who was a, a little soporific in his speaking, uh, Alfred and Zor was very, very careful not to tread with big feet, you know, to hmm. come in gently, not to move in on Sadek and take it over, not to move in on the African Union effectively and take it over. Uh, well, we, we, we're sort of moving in that direction of taking it over now, but it's been some years. So we try to uh, treat them gently and kindly, uh, but uh, they are totally reliant on us. And uh, JJ, so uh, our relations with our neighbors are a very, very important one, obviously. But Africa... Uh, well, you know... You... Yes, Pums, go ahead. You go, Gareth. No, 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 you go for it. I seem to have frozen. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm very interested, you know, just speaking of our relationships with our neighbors and especially Zimbabweans, there's a lot of talk happening with the Zimbabweans. And I really want to understand a little bit more, JJ, if you will indulge me, please, about the special, disp special dispensation permits that are ending on the 31st of December and all of the woo-ha that that's causing for us hmm. with, with our Zimbabwean, our Zimbabwean neighbors who are here in South Africa and what that really means for them. Special dispensation permits are a euphemistic way of saying, you know, we'll try and trap as many of the Zimbabweans coming into this country as possible. I was there when, you know, when they arrested me, I was trying to cover their elections. When I did eventually get released, I was pretty exhausted. I drove across the border and stayed at a farm just the other side of the border, sort of a guest farm. And it was a moonlit night, and the owner reckoned that 1,200 Zimbabweans had come through his property on their way to South Africa. That was just any night. Sure. So the fact is 
that's a very, very, the Limpopo River, you can wade across it, at well, probably not now after the first rains, but from about Easter onwards, you can wade across it. And uh, so the, the, the fact is we have an unknown number of Zimbabweans in this country. And uh, we try to control that by trying to get numbers and trying to figure it out. And and we've had the special dispensation and in, increased it and prolonged it and prolonged it and prolonged it. Now, uh, because of the, the hit that uh, the COVID pandemic has done to the economy, uh, we, we, we can't be seen to be doing that because people are coming over the same, uh, over the border through the uh, Kruger National Park, for example, from Mozambique. People are coming from, well, less from Botswana because that's a country that isn't doing badly and probably a little less from Namibia, but certainly from the eastern side, they're pouring in. Hmm. at all times and we are unable to control that so we use whatever method we can and the, the uh, permits or trying to grant permits to give the people the rights here to education and healthcare and that sort of thing is the one way we've been doing it we've had to now uh, curtail that because of the cost uh, and and we can't be seen to be not giving services to south africans I mean, some cynics might say we've been doing that all along, yeah. but not being given services to South Africans and, and whilst allowing Zimbabweans and Mozambicans and, and other neighbors uh, simply to live here. Well, um, So what does that mean when it comes to an end? Well, it means that we'll have to crack down. But the point is uh, we haven't been able to do that in the past, and we're not going to be able to do that. We all know that if you go to a restaurant and the waiter's able to engage in conversation with you and understand your jokes and is an articulate and pleasant person, chances are 99% chance that that person would be a, a Zimbabwean hmm. and probably somebody with a university degree. Uh, and, 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 and that is the reality. Um, uh, I have, you know, we have that situation with Congolese. Most people coming to South Africa try to make it here and they play under the radar. They operate under the radar. Um, so it means that what we will do, uh, the, if the legal numbers are forced to diminish, it means from, from the, uh, uh, migrants coming in, the refugees, if you want to call them that, we would be getting less tax. That's the one thing, because if they do have permits and are working legally, they would pay tax. If they're working illegally, they won't pay tax, and, and that that number might probably increase. So, JJ, I, I am very aware of your time, and we do have um, two other guests who've written a really interesting book about those eight days in July, the, the riots and the, the looting and the mm. craziness that happened in South Africa. But I do want you to quickly touch on one or two things. Um, China is obviously this looming shadow on South Africa and everything that happens in China or rather everything that happens in Africa has some uh, root in, in China. So let's just talk about them because they've been telling their citizens to get out of the Eastern Congo. Whereas in most parts, of, most parts of Africa, the Chinese are telling their citizens, come work, fix. We're going to get paid nicely for this. I heard a story about the airport in, I think, Tanzania. Um, or is it Uganda? I can't remember which one. You, which which the Chinese have had to take over because some debts have not been paid there. Can you just tell us about that influence, especially over the last two years? 
Well, I mean, that, that increases all the time. I think when, when China says to its nationals, get your asses out of there, it just indicates just how bad the situation is in North Kivu, South Kivu, and in Ituri. They're not saying get out of the Congo. They're saying move. The point is that area has cobalt and other uh, very rare minerals used, for example, in cell phone manufacture. So the Chinese like to control that. And if the rebel movements means they can't, next thing they might be using, they might be moving in themselves with some kind of military assistance because they want to be there. They want to be mining there. So it's a, it's, a, it's a, as I say, an indication of just how bad things are. Uh, the, the, they had a meeting in Dakar in Senegal between Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister, mm-hmm. and Christophe Lutundula, the Congolese. And, and that was, where that message came out of. I think we must look to that area with great interest. I mean, it's a part of the Congo I know fairly well. I've been there a few times to observe elections, and I know just how uh, incendiary it is, uh, and it affects every, everyone in the region, particularly Burundi and uh, Rwanda. So uh, the, the, the fact that the Chinese, are, for safety purposes, are moving, uh, and the Chinese do get picked on. We know that happens in this country. Uh, you remember that uh, the belief was that the Chinese only work with cash. So uh, criminals were, were preying on Chinese citizens uh, because they didn't carry credit cards, they carry cash. Uh, so that sort of relationship, you know, what the, their operations, for example, in Botswana, the, a, pop, uh, a, a prosperous country, the relatively prosperous country in Africa, uh, and, and our neighbor. If you go to the market in the middle of Gaborone, uh, it's entirely Chinese. You know, it's, it's run by the Chinese. And there's resentment growing for this. We talk about resentment for the South African giantism. If the Chinese come in and virtually take over, certainly the retail economy, there's resentment grows for that. And we've seen that around Africa. Just finally, um, JJ, the, the Gambia, uh, a country you've, you've told us about in African analysis once or twice, and we've, we, I mean, it's fascinating, this little country. They have a really interesting way of voting, which I didn't know about. Do you want to tell us about that quickly? Yeah, the smallest, the smallest country on the, on the continent. Now, the Gambia, of course, had, uh, Yaya Jame, the man who believed that he could lay his hands on you and cure your AIDS. Uh, he was put out in, in 2016, beaten in elections. He hung on and eventually forced out by the fellow Africans. And he's now in and still having some influence, but he's in, in exile, as it were, in Equatorial Guinea. Mm. But what happens in, uh, the Gambia, where they're voting for the first time, they're having presidential elections uh, this weekend. You go in, uh, you go in, and instead of being given a ballot paper, yeah, they give you a marble. Oh, they yeah. give you a marble, and you take that marble and you put it into one of the pots for the candidate that you're voting for. <laughs> now that is because of the days of uh, illiteracy. Uh-huh. You know, when you couldn't fill out a proper ballot form, and they just decided to keep that, even though their literary site is probably uh, would allow them to 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 have ballot papers, wow. but they do. The last election, no, in in the twenty twelve election, there were two spoiled ballots, <laughs> and and that were and that was because because the marbles didn't go into the drums. <laughs> <laughs> they found them on the floor after. But I, fascinating. I'd love to. I'd love to be there for those elections. You know, uh, Baro, uh, he's uh, he's contending it. The man who took over from Yaya Jame, mm-hmm. and they were supposed to be for a little while, and then he hung on, and, and then that was challenged. Now he's trying to contest it, and that's going to split the youth vote. Things are going quite well um, 
financially, economically for, for the Gambia at this time. You know, it's that country sandwiched between uh, Senegal in the way that some of our neighbors are sandwiched by us. But it has this port. And it was, of course, a, a, a kind of a sex traffic uh, uh, destination for a lot of Europeans And uh, at one point. Now, that seems to have diminished. But it'll be very interesting watching those elections. Maybe well, maybe we can get to, if I get to speak to you again next week, we can talk about them. Well, listen, um, thank you very much for being a part of the show this morning. And uh, we will continue in the new year with African Analysis too. It's always good to hear from you, JJ. And uh, thanks for being on the show this morning. All the very best. My great pleasure. Thank you. Jean-Jacques Cornish. And uh, one of the foremost people when you come to, to learn things about Africa, you're probably learning them through him. He's been all over the continent. He knows everyone in every country. He's uh, the best resource we can find to find out about our immediate and our more extended neighbors. And it's always a great pleasure to spend time with him. Now, we have something important to discuss. And, you know, this year has been noteworthy for a number of reasons. But this book has just come out now. It's called Eight Days in July. Inside the Zuma unrest that set South Africa alight. Obviously, there's a lot of discussion around what happened here, what the genesis of the story was, uh, where South Africa finds itself in the um, in the, the 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 kind of confusion and chaos that was sown by those eight days in July. And we have two of the authors with us uh, this morning, Kavil Singh and Jeff Wicks. It's also Quanita Hunter, who's one of the um, the authors, and we've spoken to Quanita before here on the Burning Platform. Uh, she's a terrific journalist who's well-known in South Africa, as are both of these gentlemen. The foreword of this is by Adrian Basson, and I'm fascinated to uh, hear from them this morning. So, Kavil, it's very good to see you, and Jeff, very nice to have both of you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks, man. Yeah, congrats on the book um, and something which I think many people are very, very interested in. How much work and research went into this and, and where were you guys during those eight days in July? So we could just get some context before we get into the specifics. You want to start, Kavir? Well, um, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Jeff. Oh, Jeff, go for it. Well, uh, we, we wrote this book under very truncated timeframes. I mean, um, to, to, to get a book out this quickly so soon after July was, was quite a mean feat. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we, we sort of tried to meld together everything that we experienced from the ground. I was in Johannesburg, Kavil was in, in Johannesburg, and, and uh, Kunita was laid up sick with COVID. But we were all hard at work, and obviously we were on high alert after um, trying to gauge how uh, how Jacob Zuma would find his way to jail. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, we put in very long hours over the past couple of weeks, um, or, or at least before the book was published, just to stitch everything together and, and, and get it out in time. Well, I mean, uh, first of all, congrats under those time frames and, uh, and well done for collaborating. It's also a very difficult thing to do for three authors to be able to put together a, 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 a tidy and comprehensive whole. So, Kavil, tell us about your experience of putting the book together. Yeah, I mean, it, it was obviously um, a very difficult sort of period of time. I was on the ground in KwaZulu-Natal mm-hmm. for the entire period of the unrest, which was, I mean, to say it was crazy, chaotic, and almost like a war zone is a bit of an understatement. Um, I mean, in terms of actually sort of putting the book together, I think it, it, it was over a period of about just under a month. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I was unwell with COVID-19 at the time. I mean, the three of us were really getting a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> but the vast majority of sort of my contribution to the book was um, everything that was happening on the ground here in KZN. Um, while we would have preferred more journalists being here, I mean, as you guys know, during that period of time, things got so intense and chaotic that all the the main roads were sort of shut down. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was sort of left alone, um, on this, on this island of insanity. And some of the things I saw were absolutely intense. I mean, I've been doing this for well over a decade now. And, you know, we attend protests and sort of, um, just a, a lot of tumultuous situations in, in our line of work. But this was very different, um, in so many ways. I think, one of the the main sort of things that set it apart from other stories that we we follow is that this came home with us. You know, if you were out in the field for 12, 14, 16 hours, when you got back home, you had to sort of look at your neighborhood, sort of secure this area, oh, right. um, take care of your loved ones. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the the food shortage was a big issue as well. So it, it was pretty, I would say it was the toughest thing I've ever had to do as a journalist. So your personal experiences aside, and with the passage of time now, and, and obviously looking at these things, hindsight is twenty twenty vision. Do you have a clear picture, and can you tell the story, and I'm sure this is what you cover in the opening parts of the book anyway, but of how it all unfolded? Because it seems to have been a, a, a concerted attempt, although it must have been quite haphazard, uh, judging again with the benefit of hindsight, um, but at the time these these were not accidental riots. It wasn't all just economic deprivation or a bunch of people who were swept up in in the chaos of those few days. It was actually a well coordinated plan, certainly in its infancy, and the idea of it was a well coordinated plan. Do we have any clarity on how it all took place now? Because we still haven't necessarily got any idea of who was ultimately responsible for this, where it was being coordinated from, who the ringleaders were. There were a couple of arrests that were made a while ago. We haven't necessarily learned much more since then. Can you tell us since writing the book, whether there's stuff you've had to add and how you saw it unfolding? I'll take this one, Gareth. Sure. Um, so, you know, obviously now we have the benefit of taking a retrospective view. Sure. And in putting the book together, we could sort of try and understand what we didn't know at the time. And um, it, you, you make a very valid point. I don't think there was anything um, anything random about these uh, this protest action or rioting or looting. I think it was carefully seeded and organized. And that's certainly what, what we picked up as we were putting together this book. And it's, it's sort of congruent with what we experience on the ground because you know it, your normal protest action things will flare up and then it's relatively transient and then it will die out but in this case we could see that things were carefully ordered protest action would flare up and then simultaneously it would spark in another place and um you know we conclude or it's at least our assertion in the book is that that was part of a carefully coordinated strategy to stretch to stretch the resources of the police and it was so effective because Within a couple of days, in prison in Natal and then in Kharteng, the police were largely overrun. And but two provinces in the Sovereign Republic descend into lawlessness. It's unprecedented. It's never happened before. It's certainly not in, in the days of our democracy. So, you know, um, 
you spoke about the 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 those who were arrested or have been arrested thus far. It, it, these are social media jockeys, you know, yeah. uh, or, or or failed DJs. Um, <laughs> these are not your high-level planners. Uh, these are low-level agitators. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that's why the the commission of inquiry that's been launched now is so important in sort of trying to get an understanding of where um, structures of the state are in trying to pin down those who coordinated this. And as we've seen from testimony in the past couple of days, they are nowhere. The tr- mm. There's um, investigations that, that haven't gone anywhere. It doesn't look like we're any closer to any sort of arrests of, of the high-level planners. Um, because right now we've, we've got, I mean, we've, there's a guy who's an advocate. There's the Speedy PT evaluator. I mean, those are, those are your mid-level people. At best, mm. they, we we think, and it's what we found in the book. Certainly, this was um, extensively planned. And, Last um, night, sorry, yeah. you carry on. Finish off. It, it was extensively planned, and obviously, I don't think that those who sort of um, lit the match knew exactly how far this would go. But um, in terms of a strategy to destabilize the state they get five stars because it worked. So last night I was watching some of the footage from the commission and yesterday I think uh, it was General Mkwanazi that was on. No relation that was talking on the... He had quite a long sort of testimony yesterday as well. He did. He had a very long testimony. I was there. Oh yeah? Well, that's what I want to ask you guys about is... If you can just take us into the eight days that you experienced, you know, because that's what they're trying to piece together with the commission. So if, if you were to take three minutes and, and, and take us through that timeline of those eight days and what it is that you experienced and what your view is of how we got to that point. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I think it obviously began with the arrest of the former president. Um, of what we've seen in the commission so far, I mean, a lot of it's been focused on um, the Phoenix sort of massacre and the, the deaths that occurred there. <clears throat> I mean, you're just mentioning the, 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 the general sort of his testimony yesterday. And it was... It was a very, it was a very shocking and 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 very jarring um, comments that he made about the Phoenix uh, the incidents in Phoenix, the Phoenix massacre. We call it the Phoenix massacre. I mean, you've got thirty-six people that were killed in, in such a small space of time, in such a small area. Wow! And and in KwaZulu Natal alone, I mean, there were around two hundred and eighty deaths. And to have that many people, and of those 36, 33 of those people are black African people. Absolutely shocking. Um, one of the very intense things that came out of the commission yesterday was that the provincial commissioner refused to acknowledge that the Phoenix police uh, didn't do enough to remove the barricades that were formed. Now, there were barricades all over. Um, you know, people were in some areas honestly and earnestly just trying to protect whatever resources they had, food and infrastructure. But in Phoenix, in the Phoenix Highway, um, you know, there were barricades every 
there were testimonies of barricades every few meters, every five meters, every 10 meters. And the most deadly was the one closest. And I mean, I've been there. It was, uh, <laughs> it couldn't be more than 10 to 15 meters away from the police station. So police had to move in and out past those barricades, but the provincial commissioner just refuses to acknowledge that police should have done more to stop that. I mean, we had people at this commission testifying that they were shot. They had to drive straight through this barricade and basically ram into the police station for some sort of um, cover, some sort of protection. And police officers were very nonchalant. And it appears that, you know, the the police commissioner feels that police were overstretched, and to a degree they were. Um, some of the things that I saw, you know, on our first day, well, on, on the Monday, the 12th of July, we were in a helicopter. And one of the intense, most intense things we saw, I mean, Jeff's talking about the coordination of this. I physically saw that. I mean, we've got video footage of this, but there was a vehicle, unmarked, um, four by four, gets to a certain point on the uh, M4 South Highway in Durban, and a bunch of guys jump out, tires in the back, strewn them over across the road, light that up, jump in their vehicle, move to the next spot. Police come there. They try to get into that area. They try to sort of move that. And while they're doing this, you know, they've the, the, the sort of instigators or the, the people coordinating this on the ground have moved to a different space. So it, it definitely began with the arrest of the former president, the coordination was such, I mean, we've heard this in the commission, we've researched this for the book, but the coordination for this had to have been in place there for this to happen in such a sort of um, succinct way. So the modus operandi was the same throughout the province, whether you were in Ishawi, whether you were in Quadguza, Stanga, whether you were in Trangat, or, you know, Durban, it, it didn't matter. It was the same thing happening all over the place yeah this, uh, it's incredible the failure of police in this situation is actually a whole other story and the fact that um i mean that there, there, there are a couple of things that stick in my mind and i, I do want to hear jeff's answer to pumi's question but i think you know this this taught us quite a lot about the fabric of society in south africa what what people do when they're under pressure whether or not we can rely on the police under pressure whether the state is absolutely dependable and i think everybody realized at that point that they are not and just how easy it is for a small number of people to cause unbelievable chaos um, I, I don't think there's any doubt in anyone's mind that it doesn't take a majority of people to cause a huge amount of trouble in a neighborhood or in a community and in various communities as the case was at this time. But ultimately the other lesson that we learn here is that they failed. It didn't go the way that, that the planners and the strategists of this uh, eight days in July, these people overestimated their ability to, to create the, the kind of chaos that even though they, they, they did a huge amount of damage and there was a lot of nervousness and it probably caused untold and we're still reaping the rewards of that economic disaster that came in the, in the aftermath of that. But there is also the, the realization that it, it didn't go the way that they'd hoped it would go. They didn't reduce the country to ashes. They didn't destroy all of our institutions. They didn't break down the, the rule of law across the country. So what are your what are your feelings to Pumi's question? If you had to summarize it in three minutes, Jeff, and your own experience of this, 
So I, I think to put it plainly, there's, there's no divorcing the fact that this is rooted in Jacob Zuma's imprisonment. Um, that, that, that goes without saying. And then in the days that followed, the, the campaigns to destabilize the country or to rise up in his name began. And then that sort of trans, um, sort of tangentially moved into um, this, uh, what was under the veil of sort of a popular uprising of the poor. Um, and then weaponizing that poverty and those people who are very desperate and seeding this insurrection as which you say failed. But what it did was it 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 there was a powder keg and Jacob Zuma's imprisonment was the spark that set it off. Um, so in the days after his imprisonment we saw and even um, retrospectively we've seen that there were key figures in the governing party who went out and said, let's destabilize this province and let's destabilize the country um, for an ultimate goal of calling for the removal of Cyril Ramaphosa and most of his cabinet members, those seen as opposition to the RET faction, the Zuma's, um, that Zuma hat that he likes to wear. So from then, we then move into this complete failure of state facilities and, and, and law enforcement in particular. There was a complete rout of the police in Khartoum. Mm. There's no denying that. And the police can't deny that. They've admitted as such. And there's a number of reasons for that, many of which we can link back to state capture. But the net result is you've got South Africa being pushed onto the world stage of being an unstable um, uh, source for your uh, or an unstable destination for your investment because we literally cannot control two provinces in the entire country. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the lifeline between Gauteng and Puzzle Natal, and arguably for a large part of the country, it's the N3 freeway. And that was one of the first roads to be blocked um, yeah. after um, Zuma was arrested. And in the days that followed, the entire province was cut off. And when last in South African history did you see an entire province experiencing food and fuel shortages to the extent that the military and the police had to escort petrol tankers in? Because we we were facing a a separate potential for violence because all you need to create a crisis is a shortage. Whether it's food or fuel, people will start to panic, and that's exactly what happened. We were very lucky that this didn't spread elsewhere. And I think it gives us a very careful lesson to consider in, in that exactly how quickly things can go wrong. Mm. Because bearing in mind that the title of the book, this all happened in the space of a week. And it felt like much longer. But the reality is things went very badly, very fast. So, Gareth, you, you say, you know, that they failed. Mm. And I'd love to hear what, what what the gentleman's views are on whether they did indeed fail, or if this was just a test run to see how to, to a prod at how weak is the state really. And actually, what we have is is we now have a clear understanding, or we have people who have a clear understanding where the state's failures are, where the weak points in the system are, and. Therefore, we're actually just sitting ducks for if Cyril Ramaphosa's government doesn't go the way that they want it to go. Mm. Yeah. What do you have to say to that, guys? Yeah, well, uh, let, me, let, me, let me feel that one. So um, I, I, I agree. If we, look at, if we look at the insurrection per se, they didn't succeed. They didn't destabilize. Well, they, they destabilized the government, but there was no overthrowing of the authority of power. Um, but as you say, 
it's a very valuable test run. So those eight days cost 360 lives, 50 billion rand to the um, economy and, and hundreds of thousands of jobs. And um, I think linked to your question, what's most concerning is that you know, all of the socioeconomic ills that the country experienced and that the planners of this bedlam were able to capitalize on, they all still remain. You know, the poverty is endemic. Um, the disparity between the haves and the haves not is, remains in place. Um, a, a certain resentment, especially now racially, um, I, I think in, in certain parts of Kuzumin and Salangkhatin will still experience that. Um, so the, the, the basis for the uh, bedlam in, in July remains the same. So, and, and it's something that, that, that we examine in the book is what's stopping this from happening again? And, um, it, it, I think that the plan was for this unrest and this destabilization to move elsewhere. And we know that because there were attempts to start looting in Pumalanga, and there were also calls by the likes of Andile Lungise, the man of the jug, in the Eastern Cape mm. to uh, start um, protest action in the name of Zuma in the Eastern Cape. But the taxi drivers in that area made very short shrift of that. Um, calling him around by the scruff of his neck and telling um, and getting him on a loud hailer telling people not to loot. So I, I think we found ourselves in a very precarious position. And, of course, no one wants to go back into that, uh, into that period that was so deeply etched into our memory. But there's very few barriers stopping that from happening again, especially when you consider how easily the police were brushed aside. Well, it's also interesting to see with all of this that um, there are narratives that have been useful to both the left and the right in South Africa. Gareth, you're on mute. Oh, sorry, 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 sorry. I was saying that, that it's interesting to note that's so unprofessional. Um, <laughs> That there are narratives, <laughs> there are narratives that have worked in favour of both the left and the right as a as a result of these uh, eight days in July. Um, from the point of view of the right wing, they can criticise, and I say the right, I mean kind of the centre right, because I don't know that we even have a far right in this country anymore. Um, we 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 certainly have a far left, and many of those people have been quite loud and vocal about how they feel about those eight days in July. But the criticism from the right towards the left is, well, look at the state. The state fails. You can't believe that government can solve all your problems. The police are not dependable. People have to rely on themselves. Communities came together. Ordinary citizens armed up and made barricades and protected their own communities. And that's great, right? Then you had the left who were saying, well, look at this. You've got communities that are all armed to the teeth. We need more gun control. This is dangerous. These are basically vigilantes. And both of those arguments may have they may hold a lot of water. The reality is that ordinary South Africans had to look to themselves, whether it was the taxi drivers who were, were protecting businesses because that was their lifeline, that was their supply of, of passengers, that was their supply of work. They realized they had to support those people and they had to support the people who they were transporting to and fro, and they stood against some of the looters and the organizers. The reality is that communities realized, hey, we haven't got the police to rely on and we can't rely on government, and they're not powerful like they keep telling us they are. And then you've got obviously those people in politics who suddenly came to the hard realization that everything that they, they say they are can go up in smoke like this if there's enough agitation in the community and if there are enough people who can whip up support for a particular person. Ultimately, Jacob Zuma's sitting pretty. He's not particularly weak after this. He's also not particularly strong. Some people say he may have shot his last shot across the bow. His son made a fool of himself. 
There are a couple of lessons to be learned from this, right? Absolutely. I, I, I think that the, the point you make about the, the, the communities coming together and sort of coalescing to protect themselves, it's, it's extremely important. And, and I think of just from my general experience and from what I know in putting this book together and from the work that we were doing on the ground, had it not been for people coming out and taking a stand, things probably would have gone very differently. And I mean, in the in the Gauteng example specifically, I mean, the, the, the taxi drivers coming into areas like Forsteris and really stamping the authority made a huge difference. In KwaZulu-Natal, it was slightly a slightly different situation because you had entire communities cut off because the protest action wasn't limited to your usual flashpoints, which is in the townships. Mm. It had bled into the suburbs. So you had people who were barricading suburbs like Somerset Park and Durban North and Mshlanga um, and... Uh, you know, friends of mine were all on WhatsApp groups sort of plotting how they were going to go on patrol and how they were going to protect their communities. And I think they played a very valuable role. However, the pitfall, and this is where the left-leaning journalist in me comes in, is that some people took it to the nth degree, and it was an avenue for racism, and that's where the specter of racism reared its head. Because you had places like Mshlanga, where you have people setting up roadblocks and demanding proof of residence for black residents trying to come into the area. And, um, you know, I think in those eight days, there was a general descent into lawlessness, at least in those two provinces. And, you know, we need to give a huge kudos to, the, to those people who came out and protected their communities mm-hmm. and protected property. But, you know, when the, the law had failed... And when people started opening fire on those who were unarmed, then it was just stooping to the same level. And um, it, I think it's quite a sad chapter in our nation's history, especially when you consider the deaths and the matter in which some people died, particularly in Phoenix. Phoenix is, you know, it's, it's one that's easy to trot out just because it's so in, um, incendiary and racially charged there. Yeah. Um, but but I, I agree. It does, it does um, call for... Uh, certainly a debate on gun control and it, it, it does fuel the, the right sentiment, especially with the, the, the posture they've taken on um, new gun legislation that it aims to disarm people. And um, it's certainly an, an error well, in their quiver well, can to you, say, well, can you, imagine they, if, can you imagine if the gun control people had their way? Uh, you, you've already indicated that if it wasn't for communities standing up, and a lot of the, the armed people are also taxi drivers, let's, let's be frank with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, taxi drivers have tough lives. And um, if they didn't have these weapons and they weren't able to establish some semblance of order in some of these communities god alone knows what craziness might have ensued and how this this whole plot might have actually ended up working for the instigators no absolutely and i mean also something that 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 we've picked up and and we're also hearing it at at the commission and in in parliament since the eight days in 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 july is that and it's something that becky said is like you know they are hamstrung by marikana because people know that they have to use the minimum amount of force and those rubber bullets are not really a deterrent anymore. Mm. You, you, you know what I mean? But the, the, the difference when you have vigilantes and militias coming together is that they don't have rubber bullets and they're not going to use them. And, and that's, that's where the danger comes in is when you, you, you descend to that level where you've got yeah. but militias. Let's, uh, but but let's, not, let's, not, let's not equivocate between people who were forced to defend themselves in a situation not of their making and people who were deliberately instigating 
riots, looting, and general unrest. I mean, the people on the defensive must, mustn't be treated as vigilantes just because they stood up for themselves. We can only call them that if they took steps towards violence that were not necessarily required by the, the severity of the situation. And there were those people, but we can't call all of them vigilantes, obviously. No, certainly not. And I mean, I'm speaking in general terms because this was so widespread. Mm. Um, and certainly not all of them are vigilantes. And in the book, if you'll read it, you'll see that we, we, we praise some of these people as heroes. However, they cannot all be painted with the same brush. And I call to mind again the example of Phoenix. You've got people who are now before the courts um, facing charges of murder. And you, the stories that were coming out of that area is that you've got a, a toddler, three-year-old girl who was shot and killed. And I mean, if, if we're talking about a danger to life or a danger to property, Absolutely. you know, that child poses no danger no, to course. anyone, irrespective of whether the child's mother had taken her into a shop to loot. But it doesn't make sense to open fire on this. Let me, let me ask you both this. So I what, a, sorry, Pumi, you okay. go ahead. I just wanted to ask about Becky Taylor and the police in general, but you, you go first, Pums. Well, my, my question is a little bit different around the instigators. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk around the people that were involved in the looting. And this is general masses. And even at the time, Gareth, we had a whole conversation about how it is easy to be swept up yeah. in the moment when you yeah. are the people on the streets. Yeah. Right? It's mm -hmm. easy to be swept up in all of that excitement. But there's very little that we're actually uh, hearing about... There was talk about, I think there were 12, were these, those 12 instigators, yeah. supposed dirty dozen. But also there is a lot of planning that went into this. There's a lot of planning that went into it. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of coordination. Besides the looting, there's also quite a lot of key areas that were targeted that had nothing to do with the looting. You know, if you think about the, the cell phone towers yeah. that were targeted, if you think yeah. about... The infrastructure, if you think about the, the DCs that were, <laughs> that were set alight and, and all of those kinds of things, it also smacks a little bit of what in the early 90s they used to call a third hand. In your investigations, did you find any evidence of military outside South African involvement in any of this planning and, and chaos? I'll let Jeff take that one. Okay. All right. Yeah, you have said yeah. very little. I, want I know. He, he likes to hand me the hot potato, but it's fine. I'll take that one. The next one's going to him. I don't, in, in our research, we, we didn't pick up anything uh, that speaks to sort of um, your third force involvement from an outside actor. I think what, what we put together and what we sort of collated from hundreds of pages of intelligence documents that we got our hands on, combined with um, our, our own sources, and then what was said in public. You know, we, we can say that this is a, a factional fight within the ANC that's spilled onto the streets. And, you know, there's, there's nothing to say at this stage that those 12 instigators, as Becky clearly mentioned, are the sum total of those who are going to be arrested. You know, there's veiled inferences that there's treason investigations and sedition investigations that are looking for the for the real architects of this, but that has not that, that has not yet happened at all, um, and um, it, it, that has come out at at the commission, and you know it's something that Zizi Cordwell said during the heart of the unrest um, was was that. A lot of the strategies and a lot of the modus operandi sort of 
harking straight back to the MK days, and there, there is a distinct possibility that MK operatives uh, hmm. gone rogue could have been behind this. And there's also an understanding that elements of the SSA, as compromised as it is, also could have had a hand in it. And the name Tulani Glomo was obviously mentioned as well. Hmm. Um, so, you know, like I said earlier, a, a lot of the results that we experienced during those eight days have, have very clear links to state capture and the hollowing out of those state institutions, the SSA being one of them, the police being another. I mean, you, you've, you, from the police and the SSA side, you've got a clear intelligence failure. And then when things got out of control, you've got a, a clear law and order failure because there simply weren't enough people. But um, I'd like to take Garrett's question on Becky Taylor unless he wants to toss it. Yeah, to um, um, and can I just add to Pumi's <laughs> question when you answer it? Because... Yeah. There were also those WhatsApps, and I'm sure you guys saw the WhatsApps because I got them mm. from people I know in the ANC, and Pumi got them too, of people who were suddenly abandoning ship halfway through the riots, like, comrades, we've got to give this up. It's not going well for us here. It's not. You've seen these things, right? Everybody was, you know, it's a big state secret, but we were all privy to this stuff thanks to WhatsApp. And uh, there must be records. There must be ways we can trace how this thing unfolded at that granular level. Have you guys been privy to any of those documents? And, and Becky Taylor, I mean, obviously, so, he's supposed to have been. And, and what is he doing? How can he still be police minister after the failure of July? Well, I mean, just to give you an example of the investigations at the moment, uh, the Hawks head yesterday, General Libya, said that there, there is no treason investigation that they have at the moment. And most of the <laughs> cases that they have that are before the courts have to deal with sort of social media issues, you know, one of the things the commission brought up yesterday was that, you know, they've had open discussions with Twitter. Twitter has been helping them. But the police service is sort of failing to, to, to establish a relationship with the social media sort of giants and really understand what's going on. And Mipumi said something earlier about the uh, coordination, you know, cell phone towers, national key points. Police don't appear to be investigating that at all they're investigating things that are on social media i mean and and they and they're still battling to trace the sort of sources of those things so i mean and even in terms of those uh, instigators you know there's just a handful of them that are before caught off the 12 i think there's about six or seven and all that general libya could really say yesterday was is that there are 24 inquiries that they have and of those 24 12 are related to this and i mean he didn't he couldn't even give timelines for for how that would play out so you know it it appears that law enforcement is is just taking a back seat when it comes to there isn't really any concerted effort to find like Jeff said, the architects of this. You've hmm. got the social media disruptors who have been labeled instigators. Yeah. And social media played a massive role in this entire thing to one, spread panic to people hmm. so that they, you know, in, in, people did what they normally wouldn't do. You know, they resorted to these almost post-apocalyptic sort of vibes and were shooting, killing, assaulting people based on race, based on their own personal sort of hate issues. But the, the scary thing is, you know, like you guys said earlier, it, it could happen again unless, you know, in our country, there's something that's always lacking is consequent management, consequence management. So if you don't have, if these people feel that they can get away with this once, 
I mean, what's stopping them from doing it again? Yeah, I mean, the point being made by Michael here, the looting served well to organize localized civilian defense groups that are now well-armed, better trained, and communicating efficiently with each other through WhatsApp groups. It's a win-win for later. So if you if you are one of those people who believes in decentralization and you don't believe in our police, which should have good reason to be at this stage, then for you it might have been a win. But overall, there's also the point that was made just before that by Paul, who says the poor suffered far more in the aftermath of this than people in suburbs. And that's also true, and that always is true. But it seems that there are people in politics uh, in South Africa who are quite happy to use the poor as a tool. And and that is that is abundantly clear in these these uh, eight days in July that people were mobilized in some informal sense, and then those people were, as Pumi and I discussed during the time, swept up in the you know the madness of that time. And for some of them, it was an opportunity to get some stuff, even though they weren't necessarily mm. politically motivated. But for very many of them, they're still at large. The people who who are the architects, as you call them. For all of this, um, Pums, we've only got a little bit of time left. Do you want to throw in one or two more questions before we have to say goodbye? Do you think the commission is going to get to the bottom of this? <laughs> hmm. Sure. I've been sitting at the commission every day, and <laughs> I think I think that you know some questions that have been posed to the police and to the authorities have really sort of brought out the the lack of real attention that this is getting. I mean, police say that they're giving it attention and that they are investigating it consistently, but if the hawk's head is telling us that he can't even give us a timeline for this, I mean, that is shocking. It's been six months now, almost six months now. So I think it's excellent that we have the Human Rights Commission. I mean, people from Amaoti's, Walisha, hmm. Bombay, who really suffered through the sort of issues that occurred in Phoenix, have found a bit of an outlet for themselves and the ability to um, really inform people what happened at the ground level. To I mean, like Jeff said, there are people that are crippled now, you know, people who still have bullets lodged inside of their bodies at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but where, whether or not the commission will get to the bottom of, of this remains to be seen. Can I just say one thing on that? And I, and I think it speaks to the value of, of, of the commission is that, you know, it, it, through those eight days, and I think in general leading up to this point, the, 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 the police largely and most of government, they, they adopt a very hands-off strategy when it comes to communication. So for journalists, it's very difficult for us to tie them down and get them to answer questions. And I think that's where the value in this commission is. It puts them in the hot seat and it, they are unable to wiggle out of this. They have to answer questions and they have to be truthful because they're there under power of subpoena if, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. So it forces them to be honest and it forces them to give us the true state of what is happening and it's disappointing to say the least. The fact that we're now or nearly six months on from this and the high level architects of this are nowhere. I mean yeah. if, if, if you compare it to the the, the capital riots in, in the US those investigations have been wrapped up and completed, sorted within yeah. a matter of months and for us we're going to and, and I mean again 
it links back to all the issues with state capture and the hobbling of state institutions. Mm. But this is how we're going to trudge along. Yeah. And it's difficult for the ruling party because it forces them to introspect because this, this bedlam was seeded from within their ranks. Yeah. And, yeah. and so that's why there may be a lack of political will because they know they're going to have to look in the mirror on this. And, and one of the worst things about all of this is we realize that we've been paying for a state security agency and for an intelligence uh, department that is absolutely useless and cannot do a damn thing. And they cost us a fortune. I mean, the budget for that uh, SSA, and there's a huge campus out here in Pretoria where they spend hundreds of millions every month and they have staff up the Yazoo trying to figure out what's going on in the country. They didn't know what was going on. They had no idea. And many of those people may even be captured themselves, for all we know. So it's time to, it's time to trim the fat there, if anything. So, gentlemen, uh, congratulations on the book. This will make for some interesting holiday reading for everybody. I advise you to check out Eight Days in July. Uh, Quanita Hunter, Kavil Singh, and Jeff Wicks, the latter two who have joined us this morning. Gents, thank you so much for being part of the show. I hope that your book does really well. And I hope, we, I hope we learn some lessons out of all of this because we can't afford to have another situation like that in South Africa. It's done the country enormous long-term damage, even if we've managed to patch up some of the holes in the short term. And there are, as you say, people walking around with bullets in them. There are communities that have been devastated by this. It's brought up some ugly specters from our past. Let's hope that we can learn some things moving forward. And your book will obviously play a role in that too. So congratulations on that front. Pumi, we'll see you next Thursday. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, That's Cheers. the burning platform for this morning on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.